0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, that is our heart. That is our heart this morning. That's our heart for this season, and that we would adore him. Lord, we pray that you would give us great delight in your son this morning. Lord, as we look at Jesus as the source of all truth, the only one we should listen to for all of the ultimate questions. We pray, Lord, that we would adore him. That we'd be so thankful to have found the true light that lights the whole world. Lord, we pray that you would give us um, concentration on this. We pray, Lord, that you, would give us, that you would help us to give our full attention to you. This time in the Word would be a time also of worship as our hearts are inflamed for joy for you, joy in your Son, Lord. That is what we want. And then we want lights that are transformed by that joy. That the, from the very insides of our hearts, we desire something better. We desire you. We desire you in every area whether it's in our homes or workplace or out about the things that we're doing, and even the secret thoughts of our hearts, Lord, that they would be determined by a love and an obsession and adoration, a delight, a savoring of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're so thankful you guys are here this morning. My name is Eric Cobb. I'm one of the pastors here. Last week we began our Advent series, and we were looking at how Jesus is, has been born to be our true prophet, priest, and king. And so the next three weeks, we're going to look at each one of those. So this morning, we're going to look at prophet, uh, next week priest, and then the Sunday right before Christmas, we'll do king. And you guys have, or should have, or if you don't have, email us, and we'll give it to you, an Advent guide. And so every uh, Sunday night, we're going through Advent. And so this Sunday night will be the second candle, so you'll light the second candle. And in the Advent guide, there's a, there's a reading, and there's a song, and there's an activity and some other things for you guys to do. If you don't have that, You could just email and say, I want that. I want that Advent Guide. And so tonight you'll have if you have kids, have them light it because they love fire and it's a fun thing. They'll fight over it. And so you'll light two of the candles, you'll light the one that you lit last week, and then you'll light a second one. And then go through the the material I have for you there. And it's a great time to kind of develop a habit of family worship. So if you're not in the habit of doing something at least weekly or nightly with your family as far as reading scripture, this would be a great start. And then Josh and I were talking about perhaps we'll put something together to help you guys do this for the rest of the year, but it's a great time for you to do that. Anyway, in the Old Testament, the role of prophet, which we're going to talk about this morning, the role of the prophet was to give truth to the people, to, to tell the people who God is, what he's like, what he requires. And we need that. We need revelation. We need God to tell us who he is. We won't get very far by speculation, by our feelings, our guesses. You hear people say, well, you know, the God I believe in is like this, or, you know, the way I feel about it is this. And that's not the way to find out anything about God. We can't find out anything about him unless he reveals himself. He is unknowable unless he makes himself known. And so what's exciting about Christmas, one of the many things, is that God has made himself known in history as a human being and has made this huge mark on history which we can look back to and know that we found God. And that's one of the beauties of the you go around town and there's all these lights. The lights are to remind us that Jesus, the light of the world, has come. One of my favorite confessions about Jesus being that light of the world is in John 6. It's in verse 66. And the context of this is that Jesus had taught some very hard things. He's talking about eat my flesh, drink my blood. We won't get into what that meant. But it freaked people out. And a lot of people started leaving. Even a lot of people that were quote-unquote disciples started leaving. And after this, uh, it says in John 6, 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Isn't that great? Peter's like, I don't know what you're talking about either okay? I'm no less confused than everybody else. I I, I don't understand everything that you say. I don't understand everything you do. But one thing I do know about you is you have the words of eternal life, and you are the Holy One of God. And I love that passage, guys. When I'm in a place of confusion or doubt, that's a passage i love to come back to again and again, because we don't have to be able to understand everything that God's doing in the world or everything he said, but to know he is who he said he is, that Jesus is the ultimate way to God. I mean, that's the foundation Have you ever been there? You ever been in that place? And you go like, I don't know what you're doing and I don't understand half of what you said. But one of the things I do know, Jesus, is that you have the words of eternal life and you're the Holy One of God. And this morning I want to kind of walk you through some of the reasons... Um, Why you should believe that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate source of truth in the world. And um, this might not apply to all of you, okay? Um, I'm a person that, you know, tends to deal with doubts more often, intellectual doubts. You might say, you know, none of this is necessary for me. But you know what? It's not about you, right? All of us have people in our lives that actually do deal with intellectual doubts and skepticism about the Christian message. And so if you don't deal with it, somebody you love does, In the book of Jude, it says in Jude 22, to have mercy on those who doubt. So it's the role of people, even that don't doubt, to know how to help people that do. And guys, we're all called, aren't we, to help skeptics see that Jesus is a gift for them? Jesus is a gift for skeptics because he's given really solid reasons to believe in God and to believe that he is the way to God. And guys, we want to be a doubter-friendly, skeptic-friendly church. And the reason why you want to be that is because God is a doubter-friendly, skeptic-friendly God. Remember him with Thomas? I won't believe unless I touch, put my hands in this wound and touch his wounds and see the spots where the nail prints were. And what did did God say? Nope. No, he said, said, touch me. Go ahead. Right? God is a doubter-friendly God. He's a skeptic-friendly God. And he does give proofs. And so I want to talk about how do we get to the place where Peter was, where he believed that Jesus had the words of eternal life and was the Holy One of God. And I want to give you a few reasons for believing that Jesus is that ultimate way to know God. And I'm going to give you like seven. Um, Some of them might not be of much interest to you. They're all of interest to me. When I deal with doubts, this is the way I retrace my steps. And I actually start from the existence of God. We're going to do that this morning. You're going to be like, what is this sermon? It's a little different than usual, but I think it's really important. And I'll just show you what I do, how I trace back my steps. So there's seven big pointers. Three of them are existence of God. Four of them are why we should see Jesus as the way to that God. And the first one, are you ready, is about the creation of the universe. We'll start small and work our way up. Okay, we have a universe made by something or something outside of itself. One of the reasons to believe God's existence is the universe itself. The fact that we have everything and not nothing actually points to the existence of a creator. Um, The big word for this is the cosmological argument. And the cosmological argument observes that everything has a cause. And if everything has a cause, certainly the universe is a something and must have a cause. Something must have made it because it's a thing that exists. Everything has a cause. The weird thing about this, and I know some of you are already glazing over, the weird thing about this is that modern people don't ask at all where the universe came from. It's not a question most people in our culture even care about, which is strange. Ancient people were obsessed with this. They were obsessed with coming up with explanations for why they exist, why they're here. One writer I was reading says it's kind of like a bunch of people that had committed a crime trying to come up with their story. It's like we feel weird about being here, and we have to somehow come up with a story. Well, you know, the way we got here is this, or the way we got here is that. There's this nervousness in human beings, at least ancient ones, to know where we came from. Strangely, modern people do not care where the universe came from. Because I guess we have bigger things to think about. We got, like, bigger questions. We're too busy watching shows. It's strange, isn't it? Average person you know, ask them where they think the universe came from, and they'll have a look on their face like... Is that a reasonable question? It's like the most reasonable question. Well, Don't you wonder these things. There's actually three options for where the universe came from. Uh, The universe had no beginning, and so it needs no cause. It's eternal. It's always been around. Nobody needed to make it. That's one option. Next option. The universe had a beginning, but it sprang from nothing. Third one. The universe had a beginning and was made by something or something outside of itself, some non-physical something outside the universe. When I say universe, I mean every single thing that is. Every single thing we could possibly observe. And for years, guys, atheists found a safe place in number one. That the universe had no beginning and needed no cause. That was a very common belief, even a couple hundred years ago, is that the universe is eternal. You don't need a creator because it's always been around. There's nothing to create. The problem is, is, since about the 60s, we've known scientifically that the universe did have a beginning. It is not eternal. We know that because we look at the galaxies and they're all shooting away from us at really high speeds, and uh, we know that from background radiation and other things. We know that there was a time when the universe was very, very tiny, and then it got very, very big, okay? Since we know this, we know that there must have been something that created. It didn't come from nowhere, okay? And this discovery, guys, has actually made the case for God even stronger than it was before. And it was very strong before, okay? But it became even stronger because it has to have a beginning. Now, people are only left with two and three, that the universe had a beginning and it sprang from nothing, real nothing. Or the universe had a beginning and it was made by something or something outside of itself. Um, A lot of people now, not wanting to deal with number three, are finding refuge in number two. The universe had a beginning and sprang from nothing. But keep in mind, if you're going to say that, it has to be real nothing, literal nothing, okay? We're not talking about, like, imagine empty space. No, no, that's not nothing. That's space, physical laws, all kinds of stuff there, right? Just because there's no matter. Um, So it has to be literal nothing. Otherwise, you're cheating, okay? So if you're going to go with number two, Stephen Hawking was cheating when he wrote in his book, The Grand Design, he said this, because there is a law of... Now, I want you to watch this quote now. This is one of the most intelligent people of the 20th century, right? Stephen Hawking. This is what he said. Now, see if it makes sense to you, okay? It's not complicated language, but just listen to what he says. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason that there is something rather than nothing and why the universe exists. What's the problem with that? Yeah, there's a few problems. Like one is you already got gravity. That's not from nothing. And the other thing is like this whole like the universe creating itself is a problem. You can't have a nothing creating something. The whole thing doesn't work. And I went back and looked because I did read the book when it came out, 2010. But I went back to look and make sure like he wasn't quoting someone else, was he? Or what's going on here? This is a very smart man. And yet, we have this, okay? But that's not real nothing. That's not number two, that it sprang from nothing. You'd have to not have gravity. Otherwise, you know, who created gravity? You kind of go back. If number two is the truth, the universe sprang from unaided, absolute nothing, you can't start with matter or space or time or physical laws or you're cheating. And notice, guys, that number two, that the whole universe popped unaided out of literal nothing is not really an explanation for where the universe came from. To say there wasn't one and then it popped into being and give no reason is not an explanation. That's the exact opposite of an explanation. You're not going to accept that from your kids, right? Where did this mess come from? Nowhere. It just appeared. It's like, no, it didn't just appear. It can't just appear. Okay. Um, I love what one author said. He said this Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. Right? What's the bigger miracle there? Okay, option number three, the universe was made by something or someone outside of itself seems very likely to me, especially when you compare it to the others, and it sounds a lot like Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things which are visible. It seems entirely reasonable to believe that now, doesn't it? As soon as you read a verse like that and you'll be like, Am I being reasonable believing this? You are. You're being entirely reasonable believing something like that, especially when you compare it to the alternatives. And this comes back to an idea that's been really helpful to me. You gotta learn to doubt your doubts. If you're a person that deals with doubts about Christianity, you need to learn to doubt your doubts. What I mean by that is every doubt is an opposite truth claim. Okay, what happens is you believe something about Jesus, you believe something about the Bible, and then you start to have this thought like, ah, is there really good evidence for that? You start to have a doubt. Okay, that doubt is making a claim. That doubt needs evidence too. For some reason, we always let our doubts go free and not have to prove themselves. You need to learn to doubt your doubts. And when I look at something like this first one, it seems much more reasonable to believe that there was a creator than not. And when you have doubts, to the contrary, doubt your doubts. Look at it and go, how solid is this other view? The next thing to look at is that, you know, we live in a universe, guys, that's been designed for life to exist. That's another pointer to a creator, is that we live in a world that seems like it's been designed for life to exist. It is amazing, guys, that there's life anywhere in this universe, and, um, I'm not talking here about how life develops over time, I'm talking about that life even exists. There's an argument called the teleological argument, and it observes that the world appears to have been designed, therefore requires a designer. And guys, the case for this has gotten stronger, too. This is a weird myth that people think, they think that there's a lot more people that are materialists or atheists because science has led that direction. Actually science leads the opposite direction. There is a desire to, to ignore God and not see him because this case for design has gotten much stronger too. We now know, guys, that the universe appears to have been finely tuned for life. It's something called the anthropic principle. And the idea is, is that there's these um, like three dozen fundamental uh, constants in nature that have been finely tuned so life can exist. Things like the force of gravity, electromagnetic field, things like that, that have been so finely tuned, if there were any other way, life couldn't exist here. It's a miracle, guys, that life is here. And there's at least three dozen constants that had to be perfect to do this. And I, I mean for things like the right chemicals to even exist and the right environment to even exist for life to be here. Our universe appears to have been finally calibrated. This is known by science. Small variations in, lo- in these things would destroy all life. It's like you go into a room and you see this panel and there's like three dozen little knobs. There's like gravity, electromagnetic, all these different things, Right? And you walk up to it, and the voice goes, ah, don't touch. If you mess with any of these, everybody dies. It's all been finely tuned for life to exist. And that points, guys, to an intelligent designer. So now we have, you know, something created from outside. Now this is an intelligent designer. Stephen Hawking didn't like this idea. His idea was the multiverse. He's like, well, I agree with you that it all looks finely tuned for life, but you got to realize there's billions of universes out there and each universe has slightly different settings and we just happen to live in the one that has the right settings. The thing is, we're not talking about multiple solar systems. We're not talking about multiple galaxies. We know those exist. We're talking about multiple universes. A universe is something, another universe would be something outside of ours. There's no way to know it's there. Okay? So he's positing this. He's saying, well, if there were a bunch of universes and they were all a little bit different, then of course life's going to be in one of them. We just happen to be in the the nice one, right? And this makes for great movies, guys. I don't deny it. Like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was great. I mean, it was animated, but it's still wonderful, right? You have all the different Spider-Mans from different Spider-Verses. One's a pig, and you know, all these different things. It makes for really great stories, guys. But notice two things about this theory. The first one is to make multiple universes, you have to have a thing that makes universes, that pumps them out, that makes billions of universes. That thing would also have to be finely tuned, right? That would also require an intelligent designer. You can't have this universe-generating thing out there and not have that also been designed. Another thing, too, is to realize, guys, a theory like that cannot be proven by science, by definition. Science can only tell you what's inside the universe. Science cannot tell you what's outside the universe. There's no knock against science. That would just be a really big deal to do. So this thing that Hawking put forward is on the level of philosophy or religion. It's not science. He's a great scientist. Well, he's dead now, but he was a great scientist. And so sometimes when we hear great scientists, we think that they have expertise in other areas. He does not have really great expertise in this area right? And, and, and certainly it's put forward something that's more of a philosophy or religion. Guys, the multiverse requires faith to believe in it, and it doesn't have solid reasons to believe. And so it seems to me much more solid to believe in an intelligent creator that's finely tuned this universe, especially when you look at the alternatives. The alternatives are not good, guys. The emperor really does have no clothing on, okay? Third one. The third one's more personal, Um, Another reason to believe in God is called the moral argument, that we have an inescapable moral law within each one of us that was given to us by a lawmaker. And uh, Romans 2 talks about this. It says, They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. The moral argument is that you have a moral law within you that you feel like you have to follow. And it turns out everyone's got one. And it turns out, even though there's some differences in, in cultures and things like that, everybody has very similar moral law within them. It, very similar. And that moral law tells us how we ought to behave, but we don't always do it. Okay? But it, but it always tells us when we're wrong, right? And you guys feel all this. You felt this even when you weren't a Christian. You felt some sort of sense of like, oh, that's not right. That's, that's right. And every um, law has a lawgiver. And you're not the lawgiver. You know how I know you, that you didn't give yourself that law? Because you don't like it. A lot of times you don't like it. A lot of times it says things that you don't want to do and you wish it would go away, but it won't. It keeps following you. You're God-haunted. You're God-haunted. Even though when you don't want to follow it, you don't. And why? Because that moral law came from outside of you. It came out from outside of all of us. It had to come from somewhere. Where'd it come from? It came from an ultimate lawgiver. Some have tried to avoid this by saying that there is no real ultimate law outside of us, that it's a fiction, or that it's just an instinct we got through evolution to help us survive and pass on our genes. But see, that, guys, if that were true, then we should feel free to toss it aside. If success ever meant that we would do better without it, we should just be able to toss it aside. But we can't. We're God haunted, we can't toss it aside. We don't feel free to just toss it away. We, we really believe that it's true. And so where have we gotten so far? Okay, we haven't gotten to Jesus. We've not gotten to the God of the Bible. But we have got to, there's something outside of our, our universe that created it, something we would assume not physical outside our universe, that that something is an intelligent designer who finely tuned the universe that we live in, and that, that an intelligent designer is actually also a moral being that cares how you live. And you know that because he put something inside of you that keeps telling you how to live. Now, that doesn't get me to Jesus. That could get me to a bunch of gods. But that was 15 minutes, guys. So we're doing great, okay? We're going to go to Jesus now. Only took 15 minutes. We've got a creator that designed it that's a moral being. Why Jesus? Okay? Why Jesus? Why, when, why do we say Jesus is that ultimate prophet that's, that leads us to God? Why not, you know, other gods? Why not the gods of the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans or the Hindus? The Norse gods are fun, Um, The Aztecs, not fun gods. Or the lonely God of Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. Why the Jesus of the Bible? And it's funny when we ask this question, because when I made that list, did any of those appeal to you? It's interesting. When you line up all the potential gods, people go, oh, there's all these gods, you know, why Jesus? There really aren't contenders that are much like Jesus, are there? I mean, Dallas Willard, he's a uh, philosophy professor at USC. He was asked one time, why do you follow Jesus? And he said, who else do you have in mind? I mean, Jesus stands forth as so ultimately superior. There's no competition. It's like it's it's false charity to say, oh, yeah, that God's cool too. Jesus is so far above. And I could spend a whole sermon series talking about, you know, reasons why to believe Jesus is the true way. But I'm going to give you four. And the first one is fulfilled prophecy. Jesus fits the Old Testament, which is most of your Bible. It's like that much. I got a concordance here too. This is New Testament. This is Old Testament. Okay. Jesus fits this Old Testament narrative that was written over thousands of years like a perfect little puzzle piece that's always been missing. It's amazing. we see it next week when we're in Isaiah 53. We see that Jesus is the ultimate priest, but he fits it perfectly. Not only are there these messianic prophecies that talk about his clothes being gambled for or him being pierced or all kinds of things that you would be amazing. He also fits just the general narrative. He is that ultimate prophet and priest and king. I got a whole list of other things. I'll wait till next week. But Jesus fits this Old Testament perfectly. That would be very hard to do, especially when you add in death and resurrection to, to fit it. The next one would be Jesus' phenomenal life. You look through history and there's no one that led a life like Jesus. John Gerstner put it this way, no one has ever yet discovered the word that Jesus ought to have said or the deed that he ought to have done. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he's always surprising you and taking your breath away because he is incomparably better than you could ever imagine for yourself. Jesus' tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, holiness and unbending conviction without the slightest lack of approachability, Jesus' power without insensitivity, passion without prejudice. There is never a false step, never a jarring note. This is life at the highest. Amen? You read Jesus' life, you're like, this is an incredible person. And that's why Peter said, Lord, who else can we go to? You are the words of eternal life. You're the holy one. They could tell by his life. And Jesus not only led this amazing life, but he also claimed to be God. And Jesus claimed to be God in a bunch of ways, and I'm just going to mention a few. One of those forgiving sins, this is one ones that really bothered the religious teachers of this day, is that Jesus would forgive people's sins. You say, what's the big deal? Well, you know, it is kind of a big deal. I mean, if Jacob shoves Wayne down, and I go up to Jacob, and I go, you're forgiven. Well, the offense wasn't against me. Offense was against Wayne, but see, every sin is ultimately an offense against God. And so Jesus can walk around going, I forgive you, and I forgive you, and I forgive you, because he's God. All sins ultimately against him. And the Jewish leaders knew this, and that's why they were so upset. Like, this is a claim to deity. He did that kind of thing. Jesus claimed deity also by calling for undivided devotion. We miss this because we've read it so many times. But for a guy to walk around and say, you should be willing to leave your father and mother and everything to follow me, is something an ordinary person cannot tell other people to do. Like, that is a claim to deity. Like, if this costs you your whole family, you need to come follow me. Right? Or, you know, he even told people, you should be willing to die to follow me. Like, that's something only God can say to people, right? That's a claim to deity. He also received worship. All the other people in the Bible, if they started to worship him, including angels, they'd be like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. What did Jesus do? Keep it coming. That's great. You're doing the right thing. Right? He received worship. Um, if, this, if, God, if Jesus wasn't God, he had a massive God complex. Okay? He clearly acted like he was God. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, right? I mean, if you went to community college over here at MSJC, you went to a class, maybe it's a philosophy class or something like that, and the professor starts, you know, saying that you can forgive sins and receive your worship and, um, you know, you should leave your whole family and follow him. Would you walk out going to your friends like, that's the best teacher, You wouldn't, right? No, of course not. And yet people try to do that with Jesus. C.S. Lewis goes on, he says, "'A man who is merely a man and said those sort of things,' that Jesus said, "'would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he'd be the devil of hell. Make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse.'" You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. And Lewis goes on to say, now it seems to me obvious that Jesus was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange and however terrifying or, ult- or unlikely it seems, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's where he puts us. I'll I'll put it to you a different way. You can make a list of the most significant leaders in history. And I don't mean ones that were significant in their time, but are still significant. People we still look to and go, wow, man, if he was only alive today, he'd solve this problem. You know, great leaders, great people we would look to, right? You can make a list of those. And Jesus is, you know, even if you're here and not a Christian, you go like, yeah, Jesus in top three, he's in there, he's right at the top, right? Now, let's make a list of people that claim to be God. Okay? nobody's in both lists in the top ten except for Jesus. Jesus is the only one that's in the top ten. You don't go like, David Koresh, hmm, maybe she should be in the greatest leaders of all time. No, right? Only Jesus is in, has made this mark in history of being one of the most amazing people we've ever known and at the same time claiming to be God. He forces you to make a decision about who he is. And the reason why he's on both lists is that he proved by his life and his resurrection that he was not crazy or a con man. And that's the fourth one, the resurrection. The resurrection was the thing that the apostles pointed to consistently to say, this is how we know that Jesus is the one to follow. They said, look at the resurrection. Peter said this, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You notice the word certain? There's a lot of talk today about like, oh, we shouldn't be certain and, you know, the Bible isn't there to give us any kind of certainty. The word certain is used right there. That we should look at the resurrection and we should be certain. We should know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ and that he's the one we should listen to. Guys, the resurrection, I think we need to be reminded of this, is that big sign in history that says this way to God. It's like a big neon sign, right? And we have, guys, in the New Testament, the most... The oldest, the most consistent, the most well-preserved documents of ancient history. I mean, you have every reason to believe these New Testament accounts about Jesus. Because um, some would say, like uh, C.S. Lewis said, he gave us the options of he's either liar, lunatic, or lord. Some people would also say, or he could be legend. But the thing is, we have these very old, very trustworthy, very consistent first century documents that tell us about this event of the resurrection and from those documents we know three things we know that on that Friday Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified died and was buried right we know that that's Friday on Sunday we know that Jesus' tomb was empty but we don't just know that from that Sunday for 40 days Jesus appeared to people they saw him they touched him they ate with him for 40 days sometimes people during Easter they say oh the empty tomb well the empty tomb's great but he was also seen alive, okay? So that's what we know from the historical data that we have to work with. We know that Jesus really did come back to physical life, which I know is a bold conclusion, but that's where the historical evidence leads us. Now, there's been a few ways people have doubted this, and I want to run through them with you. You guys feel like you need a break? Let's stretch. Ah, Deep breath. You guys good? No, you don't need to stretch? Just me. Okay. Here are some doubts that people have about the resurrection somebody might say, well, what if Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but looked dead and was later revived? And this is something people say. And you could have this doubt in your head. You could think to yourself, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. They put him in the tomb. He comes out later. There's no resurrection here. He just swooned. He was really hurt. But here's the problem with that. Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. They did it for a living. And you remember, they stabbed him in the thorax. Like, they stabbed him right through the lungs into the pericardium. Like, you, you know, if some way Jesus survived three days in a cold tomb after being pierced into the chest and his feet and the scourging and all that, he would not have been skipping around three days later saying he was the Lord of life. People would like, oh, my God, you need an ICU. I mean, he'd have to be in a wheelchair or something. He's not running around, okay? Not going to happen. Uh, and Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. You might say, "Well, maybe the the witnesses went to the wrong tomb, or someone stole the body." That was a a theory really early on. Someone stole the body. That would be possible if the empty tomb was all we had. But remember, I told you, in the accounts here and throughout the Gospels and in Paul say that many people saw him alive over a forty day period. Hundreds of them saw him alive. So it's not just about the empty tomb. I mean, that's not a resurrection. Like we put a body in, the body's gone. That's not a resurrection. Body walking around, saying, hi, eating with you, shaking your hand, hugging you, that's a resurrection, and that's what we have. Or you say, perhaps overcome with grief, the disciples just wanted so badly for Jesus to be raised that they, like, imagined he was alive. And that does happen. When people have a great loss, they'll, in their sleep, or even when they're waking, they'll think that they saw their loved one in a crowd or something like that. But, guys, these people knew about stuff like visions and hallucinations And they didn't trust their eyes, right? They wanted to touch him. They wanted to eat with him. Um, Jesus actually met when he was resurrected with, Paul says, 500 people saw him at the same time. Now, people can have hallucinations. People can see visions. 500 people don't have coordinated ones. That'd be a cool trick, wouldn't it? That we'd all have a coordinated hallucination. I don't know what drug does that, but I think it's very unlikely that we're gonna make that happen. They saw him. People say things like, well, you know, people back then... They were simpler back then. They just believed in things like resurrections. They didn't want a lot of proof like us smarter people. They didn't demand proof like we do. But guys, it's not true. They did not believe in stuff like resurrections. The Jews believed in a resurrection at the end of all people. They didn't believe in individual people being raised. And the Greeks hated the idea of physical resurrection. They wanted to escape their bodies. They didn't think their body was a good thing. They didn't want to be back in it. So they didn't believe in it. Both groups were no more likely to believe in the resurrection than you are. They just had different reasons for doubting. You have this kind of materialist anti-supernatural thing going on. They didn't have that. But they had this we don't believe in resurrections. We hate that idea problem going on. And so they demanded proof just like you would. And guys... This is a common problem, so I want to say it real slow. To suggest somehow that people that lived a long time ago were less intelligent than you or more gullible is pretty arrogant. And we all do it, right? We're cool with people in the 1800s. Go back a little bit further and we're like, cave people. We're not listening to them. Probably just drawing pictures believe anything. Guys, to believe, somehow believe that people that lived a long time ago are, were less intelligent or more gullible than you is super arrogant. It's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is when you look back on people that lived long ago and think, oh, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, they're all morons compared to me. (laughs) Have we evolved from them? I don't think so. I don't think we've gotten past them. So they were very intelligent people. They demanded proof too. You might say, well, you know, maybe the disciples just made the whole thing up. They intentionally deceived people. They did it for power. People do it with religions all the time. Problem with that, guys is that almost all the apostles were brutally killed for what they said. They were almost all brutally killed because they wouldn't recant that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And guys, people will die for a lie that they believe, but you don't get big groups of people that die for a lie that they know is a lie, right? And you don't see them recanting. You see them going on. Blaise Pascal said this, I believe those witnesses, they get their throats cut. Hey, Merry Christmas, by the way. I know this is very Christmassy. Um, the fact of the resurrection, guys, is the most well-established. It's, it's as well-established as any historical event could be expected to be. You know, if you think back, okay, it's 2,000 years ago. How much historical evidence do you want? I got like four documents, separate documents that, that agree on this. I've got other writings of the first century that agree on this. And then you've got this whole movement that started based on it in an environment that was super unlikely to believe in a, you know, crucified messiah raised from the dead. Guys, the fact of the resurrection is as well established as any historical event could be expected to be. Guys, historically it checks out. So like Lewis said, however strange it sounds, it checks out. Jesus really did defeat death. And he'll he's going to really defeat your death too. And you might say, "Well, you know, I just can't believe in the resurrection because I don't believe I don't believe in it because it's supernatural." And I would just say to you guys, It being supernatural is kind of the whole point, okay? Because it's supposed to be this big sign in history that says this way to God. If it was an unsupernatural big sign in history, it's not a very good sign, right? A big supernatural guy raised from the dead sign is a great sign in history. It being supernatural is the whole point. It's the big sign in history that points to Jesus being the way to God. Um, Jesus is an amazing gift, guys, to skeptics and to doubters because In Jesus, we have God entering this physical world, making like a gigantic ruckus, right? And then leaving this huge sign in history that says, follow me to God. And you look through history, you don't have any other options. This is God coming to history, making a ruckus so that you will know who is the right one to follow. Jesus said this, I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And that's what we need, guys. We don't need the darkness that we bring ourselves with our guesses and our feelings. We need light. And he says, I am the light of the world. He says, leave your confusion and follow me to truth. Jesus is the true light of the world. And when we look around town, like tonight, you're going to drive around, do these things, you see lights all over? That's to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. When you see these lights, think about, like, we were in complete darkness until Jesus shined this great light. He shines this great light in history so we can know this way to him. We know the way to God. We know where eternal life is found. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you may be this morning, you may be a, even be a Christian and be in a place of great confusion and doubt this morning. Maybe you're dealing with some really severe hardship or suffering. And you, know, you may even hear the voice saying in your head, you know, maybe I'll go away also. You know, you might be at a place either life's brought you to that place or your doubts have brought you to a place where you go like, you know, maybe you hear that voice saying, do you want to go away also? But you can say with confidence, like Jesus said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who are you going to go to? Seriously, guys, what better source of truth do you have than Jesus? I'm totally willing to take suggestions. There is no other person. So your two options are you take Jesus for truth or you're your own truth. That's what you're down to. But a truth you made up is imaginary, right? Like if it seemed good to you and that's how you came up with truth is like, oh, I just went with whatever I thought. That's something you invented. That's not something that can carry you through suffering. That's not something that can carry you um, to God either, right? Jesus is that way. If that's your confession this morning, Um, If you're trusting in Jesus' death, in your place, for your sins, the bread and the cup this morning are for you. This is our time to to come before and commune with Christ who came and became our ultimate truth embodied. And as we do this, we celebrate that Jesus paid your entire debt. That's the good news of this. It's not just light to get to the point where you realize, okay, Jesus is the way, I'm a sinner, what more? But he came to actually pay your debt. God came in the flesh to pay your debt. We're also here to be fed. As we take communion, we actually get fed spiritually and strengthened to follow him. And it's also a time for us to look forward. Remember, Advent means to look, to, to look forward to his arrival. And so the Old Testament people look forward to Jesus' arrival, and we look forward to his arrival as we take this. Guys, the non-physical creator was made physical. The designer of life designed your eternal life. The lawgiver paid himself for your lawbreaking, and his name is Jesus. Let's stand and let's worship him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to worship you. It is a privilege to worship you. It's no burden to worship you. As the Psalms say, when, when I was told to come to the house of the Lord, my heart was glad. My heart was glad. Lord, make our hearts glad in you. Lord, help us in any confusion that we still have about what you've said and what you're doing. Lord, help us to just anchor ourselves on the person of your son, to delight in him, and and to work out everything else from there. To work out everything else from there. That you've sent your own son to die for us, and that you've left your mark in history in such a way that we do not have to bumble around in the dark, wondering how to approach you. We thank you that we can boldly come into your presence, sinners though we be, because we've been forgiven. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.